0: So, let's go for a ride.
1: Here we are. Ninth story. I
0: am stretched upon your grey. Today on the Ninth Story Podcast, I'm joined by author Nelson W. Piles. He has a great book out called Demons, Dolls, and Milkshakes. Nelson, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. I did finish the book last week. I really enjoyed it. I thought that Thank you. you had some really interesting character development.
1: I'm curious, though. Did you set out to write a novel when you started? Well, the the original idea for the story, I still have the website, but I, I had a, a website that I had absolutely no idea what to do with, <laughs> and I, I had like a, six of them, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's a it's never-ending pile of stuff. It's like, oh, I'll just get to that later. Yes, and, exactly. Know, several years later. Yeah, I'll get to that <laughs> later. and. I had the idea for a story, it was actually an, an entirely different storyline, and it was about a, a doll that a, a couple of kids find, mm-hmm. and they find that the doll is alive. In, in effect, it's a possessed doll. No origin story. It was just going to be this avant anthology idea where mm-hmm. the doll tries to get a new body, and at the last minute, Gets foiled and it finds a new set of people. Curses! Foiled again. Yeah, it was. It was kind of like uh, an adult version of Pinky in the Brain. He's right there, and then the last minute gets it yanked away from him. Awesome. And that idea sucked. I couldn't pull it off, and I just started writing. Mm-hmm. And actually, the the original beginning of the story is it's it's a very non linear mm-hmm. setup. It starts in the middle, it goes back to the beginning, and then it goes back to the present. And you, it, it's. I didn't intend for it to be that way. That's just how it came out. Right. And the middle section which takes place in the Pine Barrens mm-hmm. is actually the very beginning of the story. Okay. From from when it was originally done, the first 50 pages of that, every month I would add another chapter mm-hmm. on my website. So like the doll gets made and stuff happens and then I would post it on my website and okay. see if anybody bit. Nobody did. Nobody cared. <laughs> Nobody cared. <laughs> And then I was like, okay, well, nobody cared. Let's do it this month. And nobody cared yeah. and and so on and so on. And I just wound up pulling it all off and you're like, okay, well, let's just finish it. Mm-hmm. Let's get to work on it. And I buckled down and finished it. And it was about 35,000 words too short to be a novel. Okay. <laughs> and I that's, was like, yeah, that's a little short. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So I went back and I'm like, well, where can I pick it up? And I, you know, from the end of the story, I pick it up three months later. Mm-hmm. In Pittsburgh okay and when I got done writing the two sections uh, because of the length of time it took because I you know I've got kids mm-hmm. stuff oh yeah I understand I wrote the second part of it which is about equal in length uh, maybe just a little bit shorter and created a bunch of characters that did not exist in the first original draft of the book and I had to weave them all back in together and yeah. then take the writing style uh, from the first part of it and kind of bring it up to date because your writing changes if you yes. do a lot of writing. I was curious about that because your first chapter,
0: when I read your first chapter and then I got into the second. It seemed like there was a difference in style there, um, but I think that's partially because of the characters that are involved and the setting and things like that. But I did notice a change between the first chapter and the second chapter, and that's where you grabbed me. Really, was the second chapter the first? Not the first chapter is bad. <laughs> I just, it, I, you know, I was reading. I was like, okay, okay. And then the second chapter, it's kind of like that's where you step on the gas for me, at least.
1: Well, yeah, you know, I wanted the the first chapter to to get your attention. Mm-hmm and you know just kind of like i think you maybe want to go take a ride on this train come on in come on in and just get you enough on board and then okay let's hit him over the head yeah and i think that was the fun part about writing this book Mm -hmm. was just the different sections of the book have a different tone they have a different feel yes i'm from new jersey originally and how that world operates is completely different from pittsburgh absolutely cat the main character for the beginning and the end of the book is a total pittsburgher she's right. a total pittsburgh chick she would be very much out of place anywhere in new jersey right she would be openly hostile and, <laughs> and she pretty much is yeah but the characters really dictated the tone of their sections so the sections with uh with marty mm-hmm because Marty's a kid, he's 16, Right, it's going to have a little bit of a different feel and different vibe than a 30-year-old single woman in the Berg. Right. That was one of the
0: things that I found most interesting is you were true to the characters and, and as the setting and the environment changed, the style of the writing, the style of the action changed and it made it natural for your main character's progression from who he was in the beginning to who he is in the end. Right,, um, thank you. so why demons? would you would you pick demons as your topic for?
1: Um it was kind of it, I had a really grand, pretentious idea mm-hmm. when when starting writing the we story. Always do we don't we always? it's just like you' know, like it's going to be this allegory on the nature of good and evil <laughs> and and you know, and I was really going for it. I'm like, and it's in a very minor way addressed in the middle section of the book mm-hmm. Marty. The character, the 16-year-old the kid who conjures the demon into the doll. Mm-hmm. He's not necessarily evil throughout the entire story, but the question does come up. He's talking to the doll. The doll's name is Stitch, mm-hmm. for those listening at home. <laughs> um, and he asks, this, well, well, that's because you're evil. And the doll throws it back at him. It's like, well, you conjured me. What does that make you? Mm-hmm. And it kind of sticks in Marty's craw pretty much for the rest of the book. Yeah. You've given him a problem that he
0: mauls over during the entire course of the book, which I thought was really neat. Thank you. So what's your plan for what you got going on next? Are you planning on bringing your characters back or are you looking to explore something different? Well, I mean,
1: I'm I'm always working on, on short works. I'm a huge short story junkie. Mm hmm and I, I never get tired of writing them, I never get tired of reading them, but I have actually two more full-length stories with most of the characters in Demons, Dolls, and Milkshakes. And I actually started working on a second book about a year ago, and I put it down because I really had to get to work on editing this and right. you know, getting everything organized with it. And all you know, some of the characters who live at the end of the book show up In in the sequel. Okay. I can't really go into a lot without blowing major portions. Exactly. Because there's people that still
0: haven't read the first book. Right. And obviously, we want to give them enough to get them interested that they'll pick the book up and read it because it is a good read. But at the same time, you don't want to give away too much of the story.
1: Yeah. I don't want to give away the story. But I will say Cat and Bruce come back. Okay. Well, that's cool. Mainly because there's just so much damn fun to ride. Especially Bruce. <laughs> Bruce is pretty cool.
0: Bruce is pretty cool. I liked the title of the, the, the book that they use. <laughs> Raising Demons for Dummies. Millennium Edition. That's right. I thought that was pretty awesome. There's a good humor that goes through. And I think that that's the part that's... I connected with is I can tell that that's your true voice and your true style. And I think that's the biggest challenge when you're writing is to connect with that because we all try to mimic who we love and, and who we enjoy reading. But the hardest thing is finding your own voice. And when you do, it works. And that's kind of what I picked up on is you have something that could be a very serious topic, you, you, but you, you, it's a playful,
1: but still serious take on things. Well, I tried when I was working on it, and as especially when I got to the the, the sections with cat mm-hmm. in particular, trying to maintain like I, I was just amazed as it was going on, as it was like this isn't as scary as I wanted it to be, or, yeah. or okay, this is really funny. Do I keep running with it? Yeah, and I think I think it wound up kind of working in the, in favor of the book because mm-hmm. there are, are entire sections which are very funny. Yeah. And then you slam into a wall with something really gruesome. Yes. Yeah, there's
0: a good balance between that. One of the things, I have a little passage here that I highlighted that I I really enjoyed, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about where your thoughts were whenever you were writing this. Sure. That's always interesting. Books in general, and writing in general, I think it's the part that I always like about it is starting out with an idea and finding out that it takes you in completely different directions yeah. if you let the story do it. It's when you fight the story that I think you have writer's block and that you have a hard time, but normally the story will kind of lead you where you need to go, and it's usually nowhere near where you thought you were going to go with things, <laughs> at least for me. I'm not a big outliner when I write, and I think oh, I, never I remember, remember. You know, from listening to you on Red Horse Radio, Dr. Tower's show, you, that was one of the things you mentioned is that you're not an outliner, that the story kind of,
1: evolves as it does yeah it's like it's taking a bus it's like well it's gonna either gonna take you where you want to go or it's gonna take you where you need to go right and, and i've heard other writers say before too if i knew what the
0: ending of the story was i wouldn't need to write it absolutely so,
1: i'm a big fan of that
0: <laughs> so your main character at one point says how far he had fallen in the thrall of a child a boy who has no idea what he has his hands on or what he was doing the boy was smart but he wasn't evil not yet when that happened Stitch could be free. He just had to be patient. Did I write that? That sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's always it's always interesting when someone else reads your work, isn't it? <laughs> like, man, that doesn't, yeah, that's not bad. That sounds kind of cool. Yeah. I might want to read this book again. <laughs> I got a copy right here that uh, hey. the author was kind enough to give to me. Uh, you know,
1: I might sell it to you. Anyway. Well, th- at that point in the story, you know, Marty has done the unthinkable and he's... Conjured a real life goddamn demon into a little doll, yes, which wasn't supposed to be a little doll. And there's really nothing that Stitch can do about it until the kid makes the turn all the way, right? You know, he's like he's like you know he's evil light, just one calorie, not quite evil <laughs> enough. And the the thinking behind that was because he wasn't really on on the train of being actually evil, because there's still very much a little boy mm-hmm. inside of Marty, and. Evil is not necessarily associated with patience. Mm -hmm. And Stitch, as a demon, in my little universe of Mm -hmm. my little wizards and demons and stuff, patience is really where the payoff is. Right. I think it's attributed to the Chinese that they don't think in terms of what's going to happen in 10 years. They think of what's going to happen in 500 years. And they set the events into motion for that. Well, because Marty's a human, he's got a time limit. Mm -hmm. He's eventually going to die. And once he goes evil, Stitch is thinking that he'll be easier to mess up and he'll be able to influence him a lot more right from the get-go. Marty's just smart enough to say, hey, I conjured you, you kind of have to listen to me. Mm -hmm. And he's bound by his 16-year-old master. But 16-year-olds are not ever known for any kind of patience. (laughs) You know, And, and Stitch is trying to think, okay, I just have to wait it out. Right, he'll tell me what the plan is and then I got him Yeah, and that almost never comes even close to happening
0: <laughs> all of the characters are going through some sort of transformation some of them succeed some of them fail at it I don't think you have any throwaway characters in there when you're creating a whole world you have to people it. And that's always one of the tough parts is making sure that everybody has a purpose in in the universe and is treated fairly and has a goal. And I think you've done that well with you, you, have, you create your own mythos. And I, and I like that too, because you're starting with characters that exist out there in the world. I'm not going to reveal any of it, but you have names that people would know if they understand the lore. However, one of the things that is interesting about those worlds is everybody has their own version of what they've created but nobody knows what the truth is and so you create your own
1: which is the best part about being a writer absolutely you're you're essentially god and you get to do whatever you want in your little creation exactly right exactly right so wicked library how's that going for you uh the wicked library is doing really really well we're just about to go into our uh, mid-season break which is kind of new yeah watching the walking dead it's like okay the mid-season finale i'm like where the fuck did all of this mid-season shit come from It's like do your shit
0: I but sci-fi is the one that started that didn't they with like stargate and
1: all those shows they used like to Battlestar yeah well i mean i think the Battlestar Galactica galactic one happened with the uh the rider strike you know? ah that's true yeah i hadn't thought about that so people are taking time off. Like, you know, the Doctor Who hiatus was like a half of a year. And then it's like, oh, you have to remember what happened six months ago if you haven't been pouring over them. Although apparently that's not going to happen with the new season. <laughs> not that I'm a geek or anything. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're, we're about to go... I'm calling it a season because I don't know how else to really do it. That's what I
0: do with my show, too, is, you know, I'm in a a season. I like the idea of seasons because when you break, you can do something new. You can go in a a little bit of a different direction if you want to. Absolutely. And it kind of clusters that like a book, like a chapter. This is this work. Things evolve over time. When you have the opportunity to break things up like that... Into those seasons, it gives you that
1: freedom to evolve. Absolutely. And also gives you some time off. Yeah.
0: That that helps
1: too, especially whenever you're a family guy. Oh, absolutely. It's rough doing a new episode every week with, yeah. with all the stuff that goes on because I have to read the story without stammering or <laughs> you know, or sounding like an a-hole. It's acting in a paper bag. Absolutely. Because it's all dependent on selling what you're reading to the person listening to it yeah. and then you're gonna add the music we use a lot of the i think we use the same music side. <laughs> because you? i'm listening to him like hey i use
0: that on- <laughs> are you using uh kevin Mcclade yeah in compotech yeah yeah are he's you? he's got some great stuff
1: oh he really does
0: yeah he's and now that's the funny thing because i use it i'll hear him on commercials and in tv shows and things like that you do the same thing i do you're going through and you're listening you're like oh, no, that sounds kind of right but not exactly what i want this sound, uh, that's got the right, f- uh, not this one. So you've heard a lot of his catalog. Oh, absolutely. And you start to hear things. I'm watching, I can't remember what the show was, but we were watching something on TV. And I was like, hey, I know that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that happened with, uh, I forget what the hell I was listening to. Mm-hmm. And in season one, there was an episode by an author named Paul Anderson. Give him a little plug. Yeah. You know, if you hear something thud, that's Paul dropping a name. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny. <laughs> um, I was gonna make him a theme song as a quick aside, it was gonna be to uh, Allentown. Oh, Allentown. But but, but then I, th- th- that's ripping off Adam Carolla's podcast because he uses that for something else with the same line. If you you know if you he hear a loud thud, he's just dr- dropped a name, <laughs> and I'm not gonna say the name he drops, but he drops it, and yeah. You know what? If if I had the guy's number in my phone, I'd drop it too. So. Yeah. But there was a there was a piece of music from that episode, and it remains one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done. And the story was called "Love Song for the Rejected," and the music that ties the whole episode together, which is at the beginning and the very end, I heard it. I'm like, you can't use that. That's mine. <laughs> That's for my episode. I, I mean, there, there's some pieces of music I'll reuse. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, it's like, ah, it's been seven months. I can use it for this story. But like, I won't touch that one piece of music. Right. It's like, no, that belongs to that episode. Yeah. And well, you, you write music, right? Uh, Occasionally. You were Um, were involved in creating Towers theme, weren't you? Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Quick story. I retired from music about a year ago and about a month after I stopped, uh, a friend of mine said, Hey, uh, this guy's looking to do a demo. They need a singer. Would you be interested in helping him out? They just need somebody to put vocals down. I'm like, okay, Sure. A year later, they put an album out. I'm on four of the tracks. <laughs> they're sending me music. I'm like, hey, we got to write some more stuff. Yeah. One of the pieces of music, they're like, okay, well, what can you come up with this? I still consider myself retired. Mm-hmm. We're not gigging, you know, we're, we're all family guys. You know, we don't have a lot of time to practice and go play it. More like a hobby now at, the, at this point. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even call it a hobby. It's just some really interesting outlet that we all have gravitated to. and It, it is very creative, it's very expressive, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's a lot more fun than when we were actively pursuing it. But these little things keep popping up and making really cool things like, hey, Well, we got this song, let's put it here. And then 500 people are like, that song's fucking awesome. And it's like, oh no,
0: what did we do? This this is not what I wanted. I don't want success in this area.
1: You know, and I I think probably the key to any kind of success is if you just pretend that it's never going to happen and you just do it for the sake of doing it, that's when it comes. I mean, when you kind of get over what Richard Pryor used to call smelling your own piss, (laughs) once you get over that and you're just like, let's just be creative with it and do it. And that's when people start. To come to the table and go like, wow, that's really interesting. You
0: yeah, know? that that's like what we were talking about before we, we started recording today, that it's the stuff that sometimes you're not the most fond of that seems to be the stuff everybody else likes.
1: Yeah. And
0: I've heard other writers talk about it, and I don't think any of us understand it. But we'll write something, and we'll be like, eh, that's crap. And other people read it and be like, wow, that's really good. And like, well, hey, if you like that, <laughs> wait until you get a load of this. Well, I mean- and then they read that, and they're like... Eh, it's all right.
1: Yeah, right. That, I it's like was, that's of, awesome. How can you like this and not that? It's like you ever write something, and you're like you just like drop your pen like that. Yeah. The greatest thing anyone's I ever think written. You'll be quite impressed with yeah. what I have for you here, friend. You know, and then they look at the notebook and they sneeze on it like, <laughs> yeah, it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that's And that's almost how John's theme song came about. Yeah. Um. You, this The song, you've heard the song, and it's mm-hmm. really raucous, and, and the first thing I thought of was like, that's a wrestling intro. Yeah. I'm like, what kind of wrestler John Towers? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and like, the Ballad of Johnny Axe, and I tried to throw in as many Johnny Axe references yeah. I could into the song. I even threw a Doctor Who reference into the song. Yeah and I'm sending lyrics to John throughout the course of the day (laughs) and I'm like like check this out and it's like you know uh, you're gonna find my boot in your face and he's like oh this is so cool He's like when's the song coming out? When's it coming out? When's it coming out? When's it coming out? When's it coming out? It coming out? And I'm like fucker, here, here's your song. <laughs> and he's like making videos with the song. I saw that. That's it, awesome. And it's the it's the theme to uh Red Horse Radio now, which is really cool and I yeah. didn't, I actually didn't expect that. But I mean that's not something that I would necessarily write left to my own devices. Mm-hmm. It's like give me pieces of heavy music. Oh, okay, music to beat somebody up with. Here we go. Here's your song. Here's your song. Um <laughs> And it just worked out really cool. Me, Chuck, and Tony, the other two guys in Mm -hmm. in the band, we did an interview with... I think she goes by the Mistress of Metal now. Okay. (laughs) And she's really cool, and she did a great interview with the whole band. It was like this two-hour interview, and she played the whole CD, and she played extra songs and stuff. And she's on another another network. I think it's the, uh, the BIC, uh, Biker's inner circle. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to hate myself for messing up the, uh, the thing and just to throw randomly throw a plug at her, but she's really cool. And she's yeah. really helped us out a lot. And she brought our music over to our new network. And she's like, the song's great. People love it. I'm like, okay, now what do we do? When you write, do you do you listen to music? Do you listen to the soundtracks or well, anything? Here's here's the weird thing. When I'm writing, when I'm in the prose mode, I'm listening to nothing. Really. And it's really cool to hear other writer stuff. Our friend Mr. Fairhead, he's like, you know, I get the lights down low and I put on Does he run himself a bubble bath? <laughs> <laughs> so turn put on the candles, play I, some music. I put in some Epsom salts. <laughs> and did I take out my quote pen? No, I mean, look, <laughs> <like, you know, laughs> he's gonna. That's take awesome. Off. It's gonna be great. He's gonna do his talking with his fists next time I see him. <laughs> I was like, "Hey, Dave, what's going?" But I mean, he like he does this whole involved thing. Like he's got you know moon music and candles lit and wow, uh, you know, you gotta, gotta be nice to yourself before
0: beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, speaking beforehand. I only, I only touch myself
1: after I've touched myself. (laughs) (laughs) Do that in a Busey voice.
0: Hey, you know what uh, Gary Busey likes to do? Sometimes, uh,
1: what the hell was I
0: talking about? Uh, hey, you know what? Uh, sometimes Gary Busey thinks about pussy. Uh, quite a bit, actually. Um, what was that? Oh, yeah, so, uh... You're, hey, you know what I like? Some pussy.
1: <laughs> Sometimes when I touch myself, I like to touch myself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't want anybody else. But when I think about me, damn right I touch myself. <laughs> <laughs> touch myself now. That's fantastic.
0: <laughs> we'll just sit here and do voices all night. <laughs> well, you know, just the other day... uh Ace Friendly's house Caught on fire And we used Tommy Thayer's picture In the newspaper
1: (laughs) I meant Quick kiss story Because they just got Inducted into the Hall of Fame Yeah I wonder how much That cost Gene And uh (coughs) Well you know It's it's always It's just for the fans Uh We sue them later And then that makes Back the money (laughs) I met the guy Who uh Who painted The cover for Destroyer (laughs) And, awesome. and a more bitter man you will never meet and, and i went with my friend chris and we're talking to i was like hey so what was it like working with kiss the guy was like i'll tell you what i saw gene he's like gene came to a show and saw the saw the covers and he came over and he said i want 50 cents for every dollar you make on that call my lawyer <laughs> gave him a card and he just started mf and gene simmons up and down he's like <laughs> like the other guys in the band were total sweethearts and he was a prick (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah that's good stuff I actually I I knew a guy um, in California that worked at a hotel and had I'm a big fan of Kiss first of all but the dubious privilege of driving them out to a hangar every day for them to rehearse for an upcoming tour upcoming show and he, he had a story about Gene Simmons messing with him. Apparently Gene had a, a dent in his car, and he told this guy, go get my car for me and be very careful because I don't want any dents on my car. If you get a dent in my car, I'm gonna kick your ass.
1: <laughs>
0: so of course he shows up to the car and there's this huge dent in the car, and he's like, oh fuck. I, was like, I don't know, do I take the car over to him or do I not take the car over to him? What the hell did you do to my car? <laughs> I'm gonna sue your ass. I told you. No, I'm just messing with you. That, that happened last week. Don't worry about it.
1: <sighs> I almost hate him a little bit more for that. <laughs> what a dick move! This poor bastard. I can't. I can't hate him. I mean, I grew up listening to Kiss and their heroes. Of mine. Yeah. You know, especially Paul. Oh, we were talking about writing. So, how do you define horror? There's different variations
0: of horror. Stephen King calls himself a horror writer, but he tends more towards the paranormal and fantasy. Then you have Dean Koontz, who is more of everything has to have a reason. It's more of a sci-fi type of horror. And then you have the classics like Lovecraft and Poe. And then you have Gaiman, who has his own way of, of dealing with horror because he can write something that's beautiful. And then in the next sentence, it's terrifying and Joe Hill of course is part of the Postmortem Press which I know you have an affiliation to Postmortem Press. Oh,
1: yeah, I'm i will I'll crow to the hills about Postmortem <laughs> Press. I really dig. You know, I mean, and not just saying, you know, not just cuz they put the book out. right I, I was actually hoping to hell that they would put the book out. I mean, yeah. I just really I've worked with a lot of different publishers uh with mostly my short work obviously, mm-hmm. but Postmortem Press, first of all, the authors that that are in there, we were all kind of chummy, you know, they mm-hmm. uh, post-mortem hosted a uh, a writer's retreat uh, in July. Oh, wow. And there's like 20 of us, uh, roughly 20 of us, just hanging out for like three days and I got to hang out with- Oh man, that sounds awesome. Writers like Gary Braunbeck, Tim Wagner, Lucy Snyder, Jessica McHugh, the aforementioned Paul Drop a name Anderson. He's gonna kill me for that. <laughs> C. Brian Brown. I mean, just all these writers that, you know, we've all either appeared in an anthology or we've corresponded. I've hit most of them up for stories on the Wicked Library. Yeah. And we all got on like a house on fire. And there's not many publishing companies, big, small, or otherwise. I would put PMP in the otherwise column. It's like this big avant club where all of these different writers get together. It was really cool to hang out. Really cemented a lot of cool relations and stuff. And if you learn about other people's process and right. other people's definition of horror. I'm going to bring it back in right now. Um, <laughs> we went around the block. We went around the block. <laughs> spent some time around the block and even, <laughs> stayed, <laughs> even, stayed, a, even stayed a night or two. Um... <laughs> One of my favorite writers that I got to meet out there was Jessica McHugh. Okay. She refers to herself, uh, her work is speculative fiction. And it's a bit of a mouthful. I'm a bit hesitant to call myself that. Mm -hmm. But the bulk of what I write is horror. It's kind of like telling a joke. Mm -hmm. The setup for the joke is a normal situation, but the exaggeration is where the fun lies. Right. So a guy and a girl are walking down the street. One of them falls into a manhole cover. Laughter ensues. Well, you know, like, A guy and a girl are walking down the street and a guy in a ski mask grabs the girl by her head and drags her off into the hills Mm -hmm. without so much as a goodbye. It's like, I'm going to go fucking kill this bitch. Bye. (laughs) You know, and everything that happens, not necessarily to her, but what the other guy, if he chooses to go after her, Mm -hmm. is where the horror can come in. Okay. You know, and it's anything that just left field occurs. It's normal situations with one giant exaggeration or several small exaggerations. There's a great story and the author's, I, th- I want to say it's Rockne S. O. and It was a story called Shatterday. Okay. And I don't know if, I don't know if it's Rockne or Harlan Ellison. Okay. And the guy wakes up and conventional English has changed throughout the course of a week. You know, like Apple is like, you know, the, the all of the books say Apple and it's a picture of a horse Wow, you know it's it's you know just very 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 tiny stuff, and this guy struggled to hold on to any kind of conventional reality that is just changing around him. Wow, that's and insane. he's and he's the insane one, right? And that was more sci-fi than anything, but that still put yourself in that guy's shoes. That's pretty horrifying shit, yeah. right there. And for you, that's the definition.
0: You take something where it's everyday, you have something that's just completely askew that doesn't fit in, and that's where the change is the changeover.
1: There's a there's a story that I wrote, and it's one of my favorite ones that I've written, and it's called A Box of Candy. Okay. And it's about a guy who's taking the ashes of his wife onto a cruise, and he's going to dump the ashes mm-hmm. off the side of the ship. They were supposed to take this cruise, and she died before they did it. Okay. And he puts the box of ashes next to a radio, and the radio's on, and his wife starts communicating to him through the radio. Oh, wow. That's neat. And... Through, through uh, all sorts of the miracle of woo-woo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he, does, he does a little base experiment where he puts it next to the TV and he can see her last moments. Okay. And what he finds out, what happened when she died, dictates the rest of the story. And it kind of puts the entire, like, oh, this poor bastard just lost his wife. Totally turns it on its ear and sends it into another direction. Yeah you know, oh my God, my dead wife is talking to me. That's you know terrifying. And the horror changes roles from that point on. Yeah. When I'm reading
0: horror fiction, that's one of the things that I enjoy is it starts out very everyday and you are along for this strange ride before you realize it. The world kind of changes around you. You've established yourself in this mundane, normal existence that we all see. And All of a sudden, you're looking behind the curtains. Right. Or someone grabs you and pulls you behind the curtains, and you realize that you're in a broader reality than what you thought you
1: were. The curtain analogy is very good. My favorite thing is to find out that you've been behind the curtain the entire time. Ah, yes. Like Sixth Sense. Yes. That ending is a wallop in the head with a cast-iron skill. Like, holy living fuck, what just... What did I just watch here? And then it goes back and then you watch it again. And you're like, son of a, Bruce Willis is in his movie? What the fuck? is that?
0: <laughs> The Others was like that too, I think. I don't know if you watched The Others. That's
1: the one where... That was uh, Alejandro Aja, I think. The, the, the one with uh, Nicole Kidman? Yes. Yeah. I think that's the guy who directed uh, Abre la Sorge, which was, okay. made, was, was remade into Vanilla Sky. Fucking why, I have no idea. <laughs> fucking tom
0: cruise yeah because they want to remake everything into something that they think that everybody can consume rather than making people work a little bit and yeah, actually hello. we could debate that one. Oh shit <laughs> remakes <laughs> you know here why don't you go and watch the original movie and put a little bit of time and effort into it and the payoff is so much better absolutely rather than here i'm just gonna spoon feed this story
1: well like well um recently what was it uh old boy they did that with uh, I, I'm I'm boycotting that in principle. <laughs> we won't talk about old boy. I, that pissed me off. It's like, r- why? Yeah. I mean, realistically, like you have uh, a story that works already. Let's just mess it up. Yeah. Um. Let's see. There was a movie called Let Me In. Uh, I think, the original I think movie was this. called Let the Right One In. I think, and it was a oh, yeah. it was this vampire. Yes. Brilliant, brilliant fucking movie. Yeah. Why they needed felt the need to remake it and bring it over here. Piece the fuck <laughs> out of me. I don't get it. They should just get a distribution channel over here and get the movie out there. Well, I, here's an idea. How about you take a shit movie
0: from another country and then make it over here into a good movie? There you go. That would be something interesting. That doesn't happen though.
1: That one's too easy. What I thought was really funny is that they took uh I think it's Japan, remade Unforgiven and set it in Japan. <laughs> Nice, And, you know, they switched it from, like, old gunslinger, and it's like a Ronin samurai. That's pretty good. Good. And I hope a movie fucking rocks. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of... Um, Where were we going? What were some, we talking about? I don't know. <laughs> Books or some shit? Yeah, there you <laughs> go. Some
0: sort of writing stuff. I, I, I think you know.
1: asked me to define horror. I'm like... Yeah, there we go. Well, I mean... it. I think speculative fiction kind of works for that because, I mean, everything is subjective. Right. What scares you is not necessarily going to scare me. What scares my seven-year-old is not going to scare my nine-year-old and vice versa.
0: That's a good point. Gaiman, he said that once about Coraline, that parents watch it or read it and they're horrified by it. And children watch it and they're like, yeah, that's all right. It's yeah, not that scary. I, both of my girls
1: absolutely love Coraline. And they read the book. I was like, damn. <laughs> love my brilliant little girls. Gaiman wrote a, a children's book called Wolves in the Walls. Yeah. Which is absolutely fantastic. My oldest daughter was just like this. I'll paraphrase because she doesn't swear. But she's like, "That this book fucking rocks. And <laughs> that's not what she said, but that's what she meant. Yeah, exactly. Like,
0: he just <laughs> recently had a book out called Fortunately the Milk which is a children's story. It's about a time traveling dinosaur and uh, <laughs> all kinds of very British humor, very strange situations. And every time I read his stuff, I can read the children's stuff and I'm still completely entertained by it.
1: He's he's consistently
0: compelling. Yeah, he is what I would truly define as a storyteller. And I have a distinction between the two. Someday I hope to be a storyteller, but for now I'm a writer. And there's, <laughs> there's a difference between the two because a true storyteller I think can transcend all mediums, and you're still compelled by it. And everything they write, regardless of whether it's for adults or children, is still compelling. There's little tricks that you have kids. I don't, but I'm sure they probably watched Sesame Street at some point in their lives. They,
1: they did under under a lot of protest. Yeah, all the typical trappings for a while. Yeah, but. There's little
0: tricks that they use where they put stuff in there for the adults that oh, sure. is over the head of the kids. The kids don't get it. That's a device and a trick. True writers and storytellers don't do that.
1: They just tell a compelling story. They, and They it, don't need to. It catches everybody's interest. You know who's especially talented at that in particular was the lemony snicket books oh yeah Th- those are absolutely fantastic because realizing that the stories are geared for younger readers mm-hmm. but not talking to them like they're younger readers yeah i mean that's one one of the things that that my wife and i really went out of our way to do was to not talk to our kids like they were kids yeah, you know, there was no baby talk going on. We talked to them like, okay, because, you know, I mean, think about it. They're learning to pick the language up from you. Exactly. So if you want them to talk like a jack-off, <laughs> go right ahead. He's like, oh, you're always good to do, 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 do you know. <laughs> and nothing made me angrier when they were when they were babies. Just like, oh, she's cute. I'm like, don't talk to her like that. She's not an idiot. She just doesn't know the language yet. Exactly right. And I've got these two... Huge vocabulary, brilliant little girls. I mean, the seven year old's like, Daddy, what's Matt Smith gonna do now that he's leaving Doctor Who? <laughs> I'm like, Well, he's gonna go do something else. There's gonna be a new doctor. <gasps> a new doctor? That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. By the fact that I write what I write and I like specific things, like they're in the comic books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, nothing like really heavy, dude. It's like, hey, let's watch the Evil Dead girls. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I mean, you know, they both don't like zombies. Right. Get the door kicked in at three o'clock in the morning. Had hey, a dream about a zombie, you know. <laughs> hey, that's a good question. Do
0: you feel that your book is appropriate for your daughters to oh, read? God, no. Very good.
1: I don't think it's appropriate. Well, I mean. You win a prize. <laughs> I, there are people that have kids that are, my oldest one is nine. She's so going to be 10 in May. Mm-hmm. And there are people that have children that are younger than her. And it was like, oh yeah, we're all going to sit down and watch The Walking Dead. I'm like, okay, you got to draw the fucking line, okay? <laughs> that is not appropriate for a nine-year-old or a seven-year-old or a five-year-old. Right. You know, I mean, and the girls asked me, like, did you watch stuff like this when you were, when you were a kid? And I'm like, yes, but... I didn't sleep for like three years. Yeah, you know, I mean, I saw The Exorcist when I was nine, mm-hmm. and I didn't sleep for like you know fucking weeks. know. Yeah. I remember watching a couple of things from the stairs,
0: peeking through the the, oh, know, the, God the pegs. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that, that's just being a bad kid. Right, absolutely. Uh, my parents didn't say, hey, come on down and sit down and let's watch this movie together. Uh, it was more like, you know, oh, I got to see what they're doing. You got to peek through. What's all that noise?
1: Um, uh, no, I'm not going to be able to sleep for weeks. Yeah, I mean, and I imagine that probably psychologically has a lot to do with the stuff that I write. And, yeah. But, I mean, it's not necessarily something that, you know, I really wanted to see it. They have absolutely no illusions about those like okay that's scary i don't want to see it right you know they know their limitations which is really which is really good uh for me to be like okay this is what happened he's like i'll give you a little bit this is what happens here oh no i don't want to watch that okay fair enough we'll we'll watch something else
0: there's a big difference and, and i and i like that you make the distinction um there's a big difference between talking to your kids as an adult and wanting them to have the ability to reason like an adult as they grow up and just being like, well, everything is fair game for the kids. Yeah. Because I've seen people do that with their kids before. Just like, yeah, well, you know, they can watch whatever they want. We treat them like adults. No, there's a difference. They're still children. You want to encourage them to eventually become an adult. So you treat them in that way, but you still have to nurture them. That's part of Parenting, yeah, it is a job. Exactly, you, you don't just put a t- plop them down in front of the TV and be like, "Okay, you
1: take care of it." NBC. This is weird. People usually give me the double take. The girls, and we've actually scaled down. They are allowed to watch during school. They're allowed to watch four hours of television only on the weekend. And they got to divvy it up between fr- <clears throat> they from Friday till Sunday to figure out where those four hours are going to go. That's cool, <clears throat> and it's not four hours each; it's collective. You know, uh, they got. They have to compromise. It's like, okay, how many hours are they allowed to read, though? I got no truck with that. They can read anywhere, anytime that that's, they want. That's awesome. You know, and that's encouraging. Like, also, unstructured playtime. Yeah. that's like, play day is like, well, what are we going to do when we get there? It's like, you fucking play. You know? <laughs> this is what you're going to do. I don't <laughs> care what you play. Be creative. You know, they were playing last night. We were playing Mythical Creature Orphanage. You know? And it was like- Wow. Annabelle has, uh, that's my oldest one, she has a stuffed donkey from the Shrek movie. So it's uh-huh. like a donkey with dragon wings. And uh, Samantha, my youngest one, she had two dolls named Bob. Bob. It's like, all right, Bob. And I can't. And I can't remember what the hell are, the other name of the other. It's like just like little baby dolls and stuff. Well, are, are they mythical? And they're like no. <laughs> <laughs> they're just babies. They're just babies. So I'm like, I'm. Like, she's like, Daddy, take a baby. So I grab the baby by the head. It's like, no, don't pick up babies like that. I'm like, I used to pick you up like that all the time.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> It's important, I think, that kids are encouraged to use their creativity and to think for themselves and to learn to love
1: reading because i think that tv is easy you know yeah it's it and it's it's easy to get and i understand where it comes from it's like well you know just watch something on tv for a little bit yeah you know and then you go do your thing in the basement or wherever the hell you are but you have to watch what they're doing i mean yeah absolutely you know my oldest daughter will go she's like can can i go on the computer it's like uh okay and then she's like looking at goofy shit. It's like, look at this, look at this animated gif of, of a horse pooping on a girl's head. I'm like, all right, you're done with the computer. Wow. <clears throat> <laughs> you know, you, you kind of still have to watch them. I mean, like, yeah. she's a very, very smart kid, but you still a kid. Yeah, like, exactly you right. Be, you have to be paying attention.
0: Yep. Yep. Um, changing subject, sure. I have a question for you. Um, I think we all know that writers are pretty obsessive that they will re edit and rework. Their work ad nauseum. <laughs> um, if, I, if you know, if I gave you your manuscript today, you'd probably sit down with a red pen. I'm sure you could probably find some things that you want to change. Um, probably. Um, the the key I think is not to do it <laughs> once it belongs to somebody else. Which once you publish, I think it belongs to your your audience as much as it does to you. You, I think you own it when you're writing it. But once it's out there, I think that there's a dual ownership to it. Which is something I don't think Lucas understands. <laughs> I agree with you. I just stop poking it; just let it go. <laughs> so, I guess my question is: If you did have the opportunity to change
1: your manuscript, is there
0: anything that you would change?
1: Honestly, I the last edit that I did, other than the the, the pre publishing edit, where. Um, uh, my editor, Elizabeth, went through and said, okay, that's the wrong word. You mean this. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then, you know, change it or spelling or stuff like that. But I did about 17 rewrites. That's a lot of, of rewrites. The book just to hammer it together. I mean, yeah. some of the tone differences between the first chapter and the second chapter. Some of that's intentional, but some of it's just like, okay, well this part came several years before. Right. Now I'm a better writer and this is better than this. So yeah. I've make it kind of I I needed to make it flow and it took a lot of rewriting, rearranging sentences and what have you. Yeah. And I I don't think I would change anything with it really. That's good. Um everybody who's dead is supposed to die. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, People what the, die in this book. Lots of people die. Actually, not a lot of people. Now that I'm thinking about it. Well, let's see. One, two, three. Yeah, okay. There's a handful of 75. People. 75 at least. <laughs> um, one of the things that you learn and you develop as the more you write is learning when to just leave it alone. Yeah. Because you can, I mean, you could spend countless hours that you could be writing something new. Part of my process is when I'm done with the, writing the story... In the first take, I don't look at it for like a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. like two weeks, and I'll go back and take a look at it, and then I'll just start refining it and cutting things out, killing your darlings, as they right. say. And then when I'm done with that pass, I'll take another look, and I'm, I'm getting pretty good with it now. I can I can kick it out relatively quickly, uh, which is which is good because there's a there's a thing that they have going on next year that I'll tell you about. It's, uh, Sweet, writing a, a short story every week for a whole year nice It's like 52 stories which is kind of cool it's a nice little challenge it's a little different than the NaNoWriMo challenge See, I
0: can't do the NaNoWriMo I've tried a couple times and my problem is is that I always have something that I'm working on at that point and I'm like uh, I'm going to work on this, but it doesn't really count because NaNoWriMo, for people that don't know, it's National Novel Writing Month. It's November and essentially in the month of November from start to finish you're to write, what is it, 50,000 words? Something like that. Or yeah. is it 25? I can't remember off the top of my head and I should just turn to the computer and look it up, but I'm not going <laughs> to. Um, but yeah, you basically you write a novel in the course of a month and I always have something that I'm working on and I use that time. I mean, I Mentally, I participate in NanoRiMo, and I'll write <laughs> for that month, and I'll try to get through my problems and, and what I'm working on. But I've never actually started from scratch at the beginning of, of November and ended up at the end of November with an actual book.
1: I get up like four thirty, yeah, every day just to <sighs> get writing in before I have to, you know, get the That's hell out rough. of the house. See, I'm a night braider. I like to. Uh, I seem <laughs> Not a
0: night writer. Hey, Garibush is not a night writer. <laughs> um, a night writer, and it's funny too because on the days whenever I do for some reason get up early and I'll sit down and write, I seem to have really good sessions. I just can't. I can't. I, I'm in my mind. I'm convinced that yeah. After after dark, when
1: everything settles down, that's when I can write. Yeah, I'm. I'm ready to like stab my eyes out with (laughs) with a poker and just be like just fucking let me die i noticed that as i get older too
0: my eyes are starting to you know you you hit 40 and things change and after staring at a computer screen all day you're like man the last thing i want to do is come home and stare at a computer screen you know as i I
1: rocket towards 50 (laughs) the speed of a fucking gun it's this is like there's got to be other ways to get it done and there's just you just have to do it yeah some uh some of the younger writer pals that i've made uh, just from doing the podcast, you're like, you know, do you have any advice? It's like, write every chance you have to get, period. Like, if you, he's like, well, I don't have time. I'm like, what time do you have to get start getting ready for work? I'm like six. I'm like, okay, wake up at 4.30. Yeah. Get up at five, write for an hour, and then get ready to go to work. You know, if you really want to do it, you just get up and do it. Yeah, it's like working out.
0: You have to do it. Even if what you write that day is complete shit. Yeah. It's going through the motions and eventually you start to hear yourself. Um, You know, like I said earlier about finding your voice, that's what happens when you continuously write. Eventually you write something. You're like, hey, that sounds like me. That's my voice. But you write until you do. You, You keep going through it. And sometimes you have a good day and sometimes you don't.
1: And the heavy lifting is to get it out there.
0: Yeah, getting it out there. Yeah, so I had a question about that. What sure. made you decide to go with traditional publishing? It used to be this big thing where if you published on your own, it was because your stuff was crap and no one wanted to buy it. But there's a lot of people that have seen success in e-publishing and self-publishing. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of
1: crap out there. There, There's a uh, a line of thought, and I know I'm probably going to get some shit for saying this. Um, we're all about getting shit on this We're show. all about getting shit on this show. I'm going to preface what I'm about to say with this. There are some people that do very well with uh, publishing their own work. Uh-huh. And usually, them publishing their own stuff comes from having developed an audience yes. via other means. there's, there's a, There are really good self-published authors out there. Christine Saltis is one of them. Mm. She's a very good writer, and she's got like 17, 18 novels out there and she's done and she's done very well she has an audience she can justify doing that kenneth kane really really smoking writer he's not exclusively self-published but he puts out his own anthologies of his own work and stuff that have been published elsewhere really good guy i don't think he's exclusively self-published so what i'm about to say and piss off a lot of self-published writers my reasons for going traditional publishing was i wanted to know if i was good enough to get somewhere without having to pay for it the old line is like well if you're good at something you shouldn't have to pay to do it right you know when i was when i was a teenager in bands The only way your band got in a gig is if it's like, okay, well, we'll give you a half an hour slot, but you have to bring 25 people, you have to sell them 25 (laughs) tickets, and then anybody who comes in after that, you get a dollar for. So you get 26 of your friends, and you have to split a dollar five ways in the fucking band. It's a rip. It's bullshit. Yeah. It's absolute bullshit. And not all self-publishing is bad. If you're a first-time writer and you've never been able to get anything whatsoever published, you need to work on upping your your style yeah something's missing something's not firing you know it doesn't mean that you're a bad writer it doesn't mean that you're an awful writer Mm -hmm. that you'll never get published but you need to work on your craft i mean right the uh the advent of the self-publishing uh industry says anybody can do this and that's bullshit yes it's like no anybody can put a book out that's true is it any good is anybody gonna buy it no, not necessarily. Stephen King can self-publish a book from now until he dies. Yeah. And it'll be a phenomenal hit. Right. Why? Because he's Stephen fucking King. Right. You know, if Stephen Abramowitz wants to sell, you know, self-publish every <laughs> single book, and no offense if there is a Stephen Abramowitz out there who's a best-selling author, no offense, I'm just pulling your name out of my ass. Right. You know. Um, I've been
0: storing it there <clears throat> for a while. It's ready to come out. <laughs>
1: You know if uh you, you know like the guy that lives next door that you'd never ever see self publishes a book okay great you've got a thousand copies of your novel who's gonna buy it <laughs> use whatever analogy you want to if you have to pay for it yeah and it's something you did why are you paying somebody for something that you did i mean it's you're doing work you know yeah. harlan elson made a great analogy it's like you don't go to the gas station and say well i'm gonna try your gas out <laughs> and and if I like it, the next time I'll come. You hey, give know. me a free tank.
0: I'll come back later.
1: Right, exactly. It is a craft. It it is something that needs to be developed. Am I the best writer in the fucking world? Hell no. <clears throat> my problem with self
0: publishing, and I, and I'm actually a big proponent of it. If it's done properly, my problem with it is that anybody now with the advent of eBooks and Kindle for very cheap or almost next to nothing, you can get a book out there. I could write a book tomorrow and have it out there by the weekend for people to buy. Right. And it'd be full of typos and poor character development and arduous to read. And I think that's the danger in self-publishing. I think eventually what will happen is that that segment will fall to the wayside. It has to because nobody's reading their stuff. And, well, right. You know, if they are reading their stuff, they don't read it a second time or they don't tell their friends about it. What's missing in self-publishing is that people just think, because I wrote it, it's good enough to be out there.
1: Well, right. And maybe it is, but... There's a pretty good chance it's <laughs> not. That's right. I was talking with another writer and first question that I got when Demon's Dolls and Milkshakes came out I was like, how much did it cost? What do you mean? <laughs> like, how much did it cost to make? And I'm like, no, I, I... Got, it cost post mortem some money. <clears throat> it cost post-mortem some cash, but right. you know, it didn't, you know. And I don't mean to to sound like I'm, you know, I'm Gene Simmons and I'll be paid for every single book I'm ever gonna make. <laughs> you know, like you I know, mean, if you're I not mean, gonna get paid
0: <laughs> it's yeah. not worth spending the time.
1: Right. And again, I don't want to piss off legions of self-published authors. I'm right. not I'm not picking on you. There's a lot of you that are really, really good. Yeah. But no one can teach you how to be a good writer. You just develop it. Yeah. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. He's like, I wrote this book. And I'm like, okay, well, you want me to read it? And he's like, no, no one's reading this book until it comes out. I'm like, okay, that's not a good way to approach it. <laughs> you know, most of the names at the end of the book, you know, I had my beta readers. I'm like, okay. Yeah. The only caveat was, I'm like, if you think this sucks, you have to tell me why. When were you pulled out of the story and why? Right. You know, or
0: did you get <clears throat> 30 pages in you're like, Oh, you know what? I have stuff to do. I, I completely forgot. I'm late now. Right. That's, that's a huge
1: problem. That is like right? the coolest thing I in the world. I made you late for work. Good job. You know, the, the best thing was like, hey, I just got your book on Kindle the next day. It's like, wow, man, I couldn't put that down. Fuck you. Now I'm tired. You know, <laughs> that's that's like, right. <laughs> everyone has their own different process yeah. on doing things. But I mean, if, if you're not, if it's that easy to get your book out, mm-hmm. why would you want to continue with it? Yeah. Like anything that's worth it, it's going to take a lot of work to do. Yeah. I mean, I sh- this book has been done for two and a half years. Yeah. And it came out August this year. It takes time. Yeah. I mean, I have a stack of rejection letters from agents that you could ski down. I could beat a whale to death with all the rejection letters from almost every story that that, that I've ever written. Yeah. I still get rejected for stuff. Yeah. Much to my chagrin. but <laughs> it's the stuff that keeps you grounded. It's like, okay, well, if you don't like it, try this one. Yeah. I think you miss an important step. I mean, if you're already well on your way to being established, like I'll bring Ken Kane up again. He is a smoking writer. He can put stuff out because he's got enough people going. Oh, he Ken Kane book. The guy's you know the guy's fucking money. Let's go. Yeah, absolutely. The nice thing is
0: that you have people that are in the industry that have seen a ton of crap and seen a ton of good stuff and have the critical eye to say, okay, this is what you need to change. This is what's working. This is what's not working. That type of thing.
1: People that self publish have those things at their hands, whether it's a friend of theirs that's right. also a writer. You know, I mean, I have a wider pool of writer friends now. Yeah. And I'll say, hey, check this out. Tell me what you think of this. I'll send it to someone who's good with editing. I'll give it... My first reader is my wife, typically, and she'll usually kick me in, into the right direction. It's like, okay, this is bullshit. <laughs> and, I'll either, and I'll either ignore it or I'll, or I'll take, yeah. uh, take her advice on it. But, you know, you need somebody else... Uh, you need another set of eyes on it because it's yeah. like you know, pick your favorite child in front of <laughs> in front of the child. Yes,
0: today you know, on ninth like, story, Nelson reveals his favorite child.
1: <clears throat> <clears throat> <laughs> it's no, not going to happen <laughs> because they're not. There's no such thing as a favorite. Well, no, there is. It just depends on the day. <laughs> the little shit is being a little shit. The one who's being quiet's my favorite. <laughs> That's
0: awesome. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. I agree with you. I mean, self publishing, you have that's my biggest problem with self publishing is there's obviously a hell of a lot of people out there putting this stuff out that don't have anybody else look at it.
1: And it it takes away from the really talented people that are putting stuff out. It's, yeah, it's it's become a quagmire.
0: It's like, you know, trying to hear one voice in all the noise of shouting. Right. Um, So, have you thought about doing your book as an audiobook or it's, do you have- it's,
1: it's funny that you brought that up because I actually, uh, uh, Eric Beebe, who is the, the head honcho over at Postmortem uh-huh. sent, sent me an email. I was like, so, uh, how do you feel about doing an audio book? Nice. You know, cause he's only recently started listening to my podcast uh-huh. and you know, he also gets to hear me depending on where the author is from. Like I'll plug the publishing company as well. And if it's, you know, one of, you know, one of his you know, P&P kids. He's very, very, very pleased with me. Yeah. And uh, he throws me a shackle or two. No. He <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're still pretty independent and shackleless over yeah. at the Wicked Library. But uh, his whole thing is like, you know, here are the specs for doing an audio book. What do mm-hmm. you think? And I was actually uh, considering having the engineer and uh, one of the members of the band. Mm-hmm hey, you know, I need to borrow your recording room for about four hours and yeah. try to keep coughing down and let's see if we can do an audio Because, <laughs> I mean, essentially I'm doing an audio... You're okay. doing an audio book every week, essentially, yes. Pretty much,
0: yeah. I always love it when an author reads their own work. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm a big fan of that. I, I don't think I'd be comfortable with somebody else there's certain readers out there that I think are great, and Stephen King very rarely does his own reading, and I think he realizes he has that that main accent. He's got that's, that nasally, <laughs> it's a little tough, and that's just an ear thing. Doesn't take anything away from the man as a writer, but I think he knows too that there are certain readers out there that have the perfect voice for his stuff. Oh, sure, but I think that like Neil Gaiman reads his stuff. I mean, I'll listen. I'll listen to Neil read the phone book. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> How long have you been podcasting? I've been podcasting for just a little over a year. Okay. You have a year under your belt. So, I mean, you know what it takes to, to make a story compelling and keep the reader interested. And I, that's that's what I do when I drive to work because it takes me an hour to get to work. I, I'll i listen to a podcast or I'll listen to an audiobook. And I switch back and forth between the two, depending upon if there's something out that I want to hear that I know I'm not going to get a chance to read.
1: The last question I have for you. Did you do any touring at all for your book? Um, Well, kind of. I'll say kind of, I did a convention or two. Realistically, um, not to bring, I try desperately not to bring the money paying gig into anything that I do, because I, but I will have a lot of time in 2014. You know, there are advantages of being an unknown author. Yeah. So if you've never heard of me before and I show up in your town with a copy of this book, Mm -hmm. it's new to you. It hasn't been out for a couple of months. Hey, (laughs) here you go. So uh, there are some opportunities to hit other states. Yeah. I'd like to get back home to Jersey. Yeah, absolutely. For for a couple of weekends just to set up shop and see if anybody I went to school with and was a douche and be like, hey, fucker, here's my book. (laughs) Because I'm all
0: about that. That's right. (laughs) I still harbor a lot of resentment from high school. Here's my book, dickhead. I have, I carry grudges around in buckets. (laughs) (laughs) Here's your bucket, shithead. Oh, this book's about you, by the way.
1: (laughs) All those people that are dead, that's you. That's right. Well, I mean, I also also grew up into a six foot five serial killer looking asshole. So (laughs) that's a big deterrent for all those like, hey, remember you used to pick on me back in the day?
0: I'm gonna kick your ass and put you in an eight-foot hole I just happen to have one in my backyard right now
1: or I'm gonna kick an eight-foot hole in your ass (laughs) leave you on the side of the road bleeding and seeping
0: fantastic so why don't you plug yourself? Where where can, where can people find... Hey, why don't you plug yourself? Uh uh-huh. um, something you yell in traffic. Hey, why don't you go plug yourself? Why don't you plug yourself there, buddy? Where can people find your stuff if they're interested <clears throat> in getting the book? If they're interested in learning more about you? If they want to listen to the Wicked Library?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> You can get Demons Dolls and Milkshakes in Kindle or paperback at amazon.com. You can also go to postmortem-press.com. You can order it from there. You can find me, of course, on Facebook. I have an author page that is facebook.com backslash nelson.piles you can awesome. find the Wicked Library which is part of the Society 13 Podcast Network one of the lead ponies in my stable of, that's right <laughs> my stable of shows you can actually get to all of that from either Facebook which is facebook.com backslash the Wicked Library society13network.wordpress.com backslash the Wicked Library I'll make it simple for you guys I'll give you
0: a, a quick link in the show notes <laughs> and uh, I'll create a little page for you on on the uh, ninth Story podcast website. Put it in the show notes. Yeah, NelsonWPiles.com.
1: Exactly. And at NelsonWPiles for all you Twitter people. <laughs> um, you know, I'll plug the Wicked Library, though. I got to I gotta give a shout out to uh, my partner on there, Maddie Von Stark. Yes. The, uh, the first Christmas special we did for season one was called the Chris Massacre special. So this year, it's Chris Massacre 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> so...
0: And yeah, I just, uh, I actually just finished listening to Sexy Elf Story this
1: morning. <laughs> that was interesting. Ah, Rich Bottles Jr. He always delivers with that shit. I tell you what, he's, if you saw him, he's the most unassuming guy, and he's a really, really nice guy, and he writes the most depraved shit I have <laughs> ever read, but he does it well. I mean, it's yeah. not like he's beating you over the head with a jagundo phallus. Hey, hey now. Hey now. But I mean he's he's a really talented writer who can get away with writing depraved shit yeah. <laughs> like Kathy the sexy elf. But yeah. yeah, that's a that's a good one. Yeah.
0: It's good stuff. All right. Well, I guess we're done then. Okay. I just wanted to thank you for coming by and okay. spending some time with me. I got the awesome Demons are dicks mug here <laughs> and the Demons dolls and milkshake's paperback. No it's, pictures. No pictures. Well oh, on the cover. Man. Oh well, actually, yeah, that's awesome. Now, th- does this doll
1: actually exist? Do you have him in your... Here's a story. If he... Um, I brought her up before Maddie Von Stark. Yes. That's actually Maddie's face right there. and That's her hand. She's holding... I made the Stitch doll. Oh, you did. Okay. And so he exists. So somewhere. Maddie lives in Wisconsin. Yes. And she's really cool. She's very, very funny, uh, very clever. And, and I call her up. I'm like, Stark, I got the doll I made. Can can I send this out to you and have you take some pictures? She's like, yeah, that'd be rad. And you know, so I put it in an envelope because she's got the heavy Wisconsin yes. accent. She's awesome. <laughs> she's like, she's, I'm like, why don't you come on the show? And she's like, man, they're not gonna really dig my voice. And I'm like, okay, okay. But, well, everybody loved Fargo, so tell her to pop on. <laughs> she's gonna kick my ass. <laughs> so I'm, I I sent her the doll. And within 15 minutes of her her getting the doll, she sends me that picture and she's like, is that all right? And I'm like, fuck, that's the cover of the book. Yeah. And and I'm like, okay, you know, and she she was taking pictures of Stitch in her house. Yeah. You know, all over and I'm like, all right, it's dark time to send him back. <laughs> and she mailed him out to me and he never showed. Uh, so somewhere in America. Stitch is running around. Stitch is running around sighing.
0: His little ass off. He's probably in the pine barrens like, in a cave. <laughs> he's like, oh, I want to go home. I just
1: want to fucking get out of this doll. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, yeah, she did the whole cover. Like, there's the, the, the picture that all of this stuff is covering. Yeah, is another interpretation of Stitch that she initially did. So there is a Stitch doll out there. And hey, if you have the Stitch doll, whoever, <laughs> whoever the hell is out there. I really kind of would like him back. Yeah, you,
0: you, you really shouldn't be fucking around with the Stitch doll. You really shouldn't. It's not going to end well for you.
1: He likes to tear things off of people. He does. And then put them back on just so he could tear, tear them off, off again. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Nelson. I appreciate it. We'll
0: look forward to the Christmas episode of the Wicked Library and whatever you got cooking for Stitch coming up. In the uh, future all right thanks
1: man it's been a great time all right man i appreciate it love thanks the so show much. it's good to be on man <laughs> thanks i appreciate that you've been listening to the ninth story podcast a Hicks and fabulous production I broke it.